Some say that tipping has gotten out of hand. Every time you go to pay, every register you're at, you see this screen nowadays. And you are left with the moral conundrum of, do I need to add a 40% tip to my $3 coffee? Now, there are some who are worried that this is going to expand to other places. Someone was joking online the other day on TikTok. I saw this. This was somebody saying that you're about to see this at church. Now, if you see this at church, we may need another reformation. <laughs> if you see that, we may need another reformation, if you know what that was all about. But tipping, when appropriate, really is the baseline of generosity. You know, people who are truly generous, who change the lives of other people with their, gener with their generosity, they do more than add a dollar to the cost of their cup of coffee. And that's really what I want to look at. I want to look at those people who, who, have, who have reached the tipping point of what it means to be a faithful steward, what it means to be generous. For them, a faithful stewardship and, and a generous life is not just something that they know they should do, it is something that they now see they get to do. It's not a have to, it's a want to. They have gone beyond the tipping point. And what I want to know is, what is it that that faithful steward, that that truly generous person what is it that they know that maybe I don't know or, or that you need to know so that we too might cross the threshold, go beyond the tipping point of bare minimum generosity? That's what we're going to wrestle with throughout this series. And our guide today is this famous, albeit controversial, sometimes confusing parable. The official name of this parable is called the Parable of the Minas. The mina is the, the name of that coin that the prince in the story gives to his servants. So let me just recap the story that we just read. Jesus tells this story of a prince, a, a man of nobility, who is going to go off to a faraway place and be appointed as king and then come back. But the T on this prince is that the people around him don't necessarily like him all that much. And so they, they start to speak poorly of him and say that they don't want him to be a king over them. Nonetheless, before this prince goes off to be appointed king and come back with all this kingly power, he gathers some of his servants. He gathers 10 servants. That's an important number to remember. He gathers 10 servants and he gives to each one of them 10 minas. Now, one mina was equivalent to like three months worth of wages, and all 10 of them received 10 of them. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And he said to them, do something with this while I'm away. Uh, specifically, this is what he said. This is a more direct translation than what we read earlier. Luke 19 verse 13 says this, the prince says to his servants, engage in business until I come back. And then once the king, now king, comes back, we find out that two of those servants have been really faithful. They've taken what the, the king had given to them and they've done something with it. But one of those servants had been unfaithful. They just hidden that money out of, out of fear of, of losing it. And then once those servants are head to account, the king then turns his attention to those enemies, those haters, those people who didn't want him to be a king. And he assigns them capital punishment. Like I said, it's, it's a complex and, and somewhat scandalous parable. But the first thing you need to know about this parable as we walk through it is that Jesus really uses this parable as an explicit analogy about his own life and his own ministry. Jesus is telling us a story about himself. In this parable, Jesus is the prince who's about to become a king. 
Indeed, Jesus tells this story about five minutes before he goes into Jerusalem on what's called the triumphal entry, the start of Holy Week where he rides in on a donkey and people are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, hail the king of the Jews. And he's riding into Jerusalem and less than a week later, he's going to be dead on a cross. And in the process, he's going to be anointed and appointed as the true king and savior of the world through his death on the cross, through his rise from the grave. He's going to be appointed the king of God's kingdom. And then he promises before he ascends that he's going to come back. So he ascends into heaven to now reign and rule over all of creation as the king of this new kingdom. But he promises that he's going to come back. And he's entrusted to his servants, his church, Much like the servants in the parable, he's entrusted to his servants in the church. He's given us certain resources. And he says, be about my business until the day that I come back. Use the resources that I've entrusted to you to do my business in this world while you wait for me to return as the Savior King of the world. That's his charge to us. Now, If you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, there's a chance that even that right there is new news to you. That as a baptized follower of Jesus, you're not just a a citizen of the United States or a, a member of this church or part of this community called Spring Branch or Houston or wherever it is you live here in Houston, but that you are a part of another kingdom of which Jesus has been appointed king and over which he is reigning and ruling right now, though he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And you may not know that that all the resources that you have been given, all the resources you have been given have actually been entrusted to you by God through Jesus Christ and that there is this call upon you and upon me to utilize the resources that we've been given for the glory of the king and the good of the people around us. That, That we are the stewards to which all these resources have been entrusted and we are awaiting the return of our king. We're awaiting the return of our king. And, and now the first thing to understand is that those who, have, those who have gone beyond the tipping point, who are really faithful in their generosity, who engage in life-changing generosity, they understand this truth, that the things that they have are really not their own, but they have been entrusted to them by someone greater. And that the things that we have have a higher purpose That whatever it is that you have, whether you think you have a lot or whether you think you have a little, if you're a follower of Jesus, the things that have been given to you have not been given to you merely for your consumption, but they have been given to you for your care. That the things that you possess are not merely a treasure in your hands, but they are also a test and a trust. Will you use the things according to the will of the one who gave them to you? And can you make much of those things through those things with your own hands and through your own heart until the day that the Savior comes back? And he does, in fact, call us to account. Now, the the next thing that we learn in this parable is that there will be a day where the faithfulness The faithfulness of stewards is celebrated. Uh, The king returns in the parable and he sees those who have made much of the things that have been entrusted to them and they are entrusted with more. 
Now, we don't like to talk about this, but, but there is something to what's said in the parable and what's said elsewhere in the New Testament about God's people in the end who are faithful in their life, who, who do the best they can with, with the things that they've been given in order to honor God with it and bless others with it, that that will be recognized, celebrated, and rewarded in some capacity in eternity. In the parable, the faithful stewards are given leadership over cities. They're given this honorable position, this great responsibility. What will that look like when the true King Jesus comes back and he notices your faithfulness and mine and he recognizes it and celebrates it in some way? I don't know. But what we do know is that it will be recognized and celebrated. Are we saved by it? Not at all. But will there be some recognition of it? I mean, the parable seems to say so. Jesus certainly says so. And the rest of the New Testament all over the place says so. And again, I think this is something that those who have gone beyond the tipping point in generosity, they understand. They understand that when they're faithful with the things that they've been given, that it not only affects this world right here, but that it has resonance and impact in the world to come, albeit in ways in which we can't really quantify or understand just yet. And if you don't believe me, listen to Jesus. Here's just one other moment where Jesus makes this point. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. These are really famous words. Jesus says, lay up or store for yourselves treasures in Houston. Oh, wait, that's not. <laughs> See, you got you to kind of dig into the original language here to get to what he's saying. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are the, the minas that God has entrusted to you? That through your faithfulness not only have resonance here but into eternity. I mean, is it just finances? I would say to you, no. I would say that there are at least three categories of, of treasures that God has given to you, of minas that he's entrusted to you to do his work within this world while Jesus is away and while we await his return. I, I think you could, you could look at uh, the people in your life that you love. You could look certainly at the possessions, including finances, that you cherish. And, and then also you could look at the, the prize of the gospel that you have received. At the very least, these are the three things, the three minas, the great treasures that have been handed to you, the people you love, the possessions you cherish, and the prize of knowing that you are loved and saved by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And what faithfulness looks like is, is followers of Jesus wrestling with this question. Given what I know about the heart of God, what does it mean for me to, to, to be faithful to the people that he's given to me, with the possessions that he's handed to me, and in response to the prize that he's handed me. Now, I don't have a prescription for what that looks like, but I do know that faithfulness begins and really ends with wrestling with questions like that. And so it might sound something like this. Well, well, here's what I know God's heart is all about. God, God the Father says that that really it comes down to trusting in his son. He wants people to trust in his son. So that's a big deal to God. Uh, forgiveness matters a lot to him. Mercy to the undeserving matters to him. Compassion to the poor and the needy matters to him. Justice matters to him. So, so maybe being a good steward of the people and the possessions and the prize of the gospel means that I, means that I, I pray with my kids. It means that I, 
I, I forgive my spouse, especially when and even when they, they don't deserve it. It, it, means that, it means that I invite my friend to church because that's how I share the prize, the gospel. It means that I, I give my first and my best to the mission of the church because this is where God shares that gift with everybody else. It, it, means, that, it means that I notice the needs of others and I, I give from what I have to meet their need. That's why it's been entrusted to me. It means that if I see injustice or oppression, I, I take something of what I have to try and respond to it and help end it and bring a little semblance of the kingdom to come here on earth right now. That, that's what it looks like. It's wrestling with, with those kinds of questions. And I would encourage you, if you're here today, to take that question home with you. Even, even make it even a little simpler. If you're here and, and, and you're as an, here as an individual or you're here as a family, wrestle with this question. What would it look like for us to be a little bit more faithful with just one of the treasures that we've been given? What does it look like to be a little more faithful to the people that God has put in my life? What does it look like to be a little more faithful with the possessions he's given? What does it look like to be a little more faithful with this prize of knowing that we're loved by grace through faith alone? What does it look like to be faithful? Wrestle with that. And, and know, know that it is seen. Know that it is noticed. And know that that faithfulness in the end, in a way in which we can't fully understand, is recognized and rewarded. Now, the next thing we see in this parable is that the, the, king, the king scolds the unfaithful steward. Now, now, there are a lot of reasons why people will be unfaithful in their stewardship, the management of the stuff that God has put in their hands. Uh, but I think you can, you can boil all those reasons down to one thing. It comes down to fear. Uh, we, we become afraid that, that if we're faithful to God, God will let us go without or, or we get afraid that if we, if we step out in faith and really stretch ourselves that we'll look foolish or that it'll fail and somehow that'll reflect poorly on us. It really comes down to fear. I mean, that's what it was for the unfaithful steward in the parable. I mean, he, he says as much. Look again at what he says. In Luke chapter 19, verse 21, he literally says, I was afraid of you. Here's why I didn't do anything with the stuff you gave me. I was afraid of you. But here's where it gets interesting. Because you're a severe man, wow, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You see what's happening here? He's essentially saying, look, I wasn't faithful with the things you gave me because of you. It's really not my fault. It's your fault. I was afraid of you. You're a difficult person. You, you strike fear in my heart, and plus, plus, you can't be trusted because you take what doesn't belong to you. And you see, that, that's where unfaithfulness ultimately goes. It's a really slick move, but it's the same move over and over again. It's the move that the man in the parable makes, but it's also the move that you and I make when we're unfaithful in our stewardship, our management of the stuff that has been entrusted to us. Ultimately, we, we slander the character of the giver. That's the move. We say, well, I, I would give, but I haven't been given enough myself. Oh, he's, so he's not generous. Oh, I, I would give, but what if I'm left out in the cold and I don't have anything in my own hands? Well, what if God just leaves me hanging and struggling? Oh, so he can't be trusted. I would invite, 
but what if this person rejects me and says no, and then, and then I end up at church all sheepish, all by myself, feeling like a fool? Oh, so again, this God can't be trusted. He can't be trusted. What you're doing, ultimately, is slandering the character of the one who's given you these gifts to steward. That's the move that fear makes. And look, I get it. I get afraid at times, too, when it comes to being a good steward of the stuff that God has given to me, the people, the possessions, and the prize of knowing that I'm loved by God through Jesus Christ. It is not easy. It is always risky. It is always vulnerable to go where Jesus asks us to go. Faithfulness always carries with it a bit of fear. But the the real question is, which fear will you give the loudest voice to? Which fear will you let be loudest? Will it be the fear of going without something you want? Or will it be the fear of missing out on what God has doing, is doing and is inviting you into? Let me say that again. Will it be the fear of going without something you want? Or will it be the fear of missing out on what God is doing through your generosity and which he's inviting you to be a partner in? What, what people who have kind of crossed the tipping point into life-changing stewardship and generosity, what they understand is that they're going to let the fear of missing out be louder than the fear of going without. I would rather go without something I think I need than miss out on what the Lord of the universe is up to and has invited me into. If fear is going to get a say, it's going to say that. Now, at the end of the parable, the end of the parable is really interesting. At the end of the parable, the king turns his attention away from the stewards, the faithful ones and the unfaithful one, and he turns his attention towards those enemies, those people who were talking smack about him, those people who didn't want him to be king in the first place, those people who were saying all those terrible things about him, the people who didn't want his lordship and his leadership, he turns towards them and he condemns them. And there are some who read this parable and they think, well, man, is is that what's at stake for me? If, if you're saying that I'm called to be a good steward of the stuff that's been entrusted to me, if, if I get this wrong, is that what I'm risking? Am I risking condemnation from Jesus? Is that what Jesus is saying in this parable? And, and my response to that is, no, that's, that's not what's at stake for you. Look at the text. Does, does the unfaithful steward get a harsh rebuke? Yes. But does he remain a steward and a servant of the king? Yes. Is his one coin taken away and given to the more faithful steward? Yes. But is he still a member of the king's household? Yes. The condemnation is is only for those who never wanted him to be king in the first place. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this this has some implications for you. You you could choose to see it as kind of like a good news, bad news thing. The good news, I guess, is that all the stuff that we've been talking about, about being a good steward of the stuff that God has entrusted to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it really doesn't apply to you. Yes, I believe that everything you have comes from God, and he he would love for you to be one of his stewards and to manage it according to his purposes and experience and share the blessings thereof, but but you're not a part of his family yet, and so you don't have to. Just go do what you want. Yay! But the not-so-good news is that, and see, there are some preachers who won't talk about this part of the text, but I'm not one of those preachers, okay? I'm just going to give it to you like it is, all right? The not-so-good part of that is that um, Jesus is saying that when he comes back, when the king returns, there will be an accounting of the stewards and the enemies. And, and, And every implication here is that 
it will be much, much, much worse for those who rejected his kingship than for those who struggled to be faithful stewards. So in the end, which would you rather be? Which would you rather be? So now, what's the bottom line? What's the summary of, of this whole complex parable about stewardship and generosity? I think you could summarize everything that, that the person who's crossed the tipping point, the faithful steward knows in this parable in, in three words, okay? The three words are these. God has more. God has more. Think of what we've learned from this parable. We've learned that God has more purpose for your possessions than just consumption. God has more, God has more resources and joy for you to experience on the other side of faithfulness at Jesus' return. And God has more grace and mercy and compassion to unfaithful stewards than you would expect. God has more. And when you understand that God has more, it is easier for you to be faithful with what God has given. Now, what's really fascinating about this parable to me is is this idea, this this truth. And this came to me when I was talking with another pastor who's a friend of mine. We were talking about the the, the things we were preaching on this weekend, and, and he pointed out something to me in the text that I had completely overlooked. He said, Matt, did you notice in that text that the king in the parable, when he is accused by the unfaithful steward of reaping what he does not sow, basically taking what's not his, that when he's accused of reaping what he does not sow, that the king, the prince, does not defend himself or correct this accusation. And then I started to wrestle with the text and go, well, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? You want to know why? Remember, this is all about Jesus. Because it's true. The king does reap what he does not sow. He does take what is not his. But this is not bad news. This is good news. Remember, it's all about Jesus, okay? Think about this, think about this. Who has sown sin and rebellion and disbelief and arrogance and pride and greed and injustice and murder and slander? Who sowed that? Who threw that out into the world? Was it Jesus or was it you and me? It was us. We're the ones who sowed all that. But who reaps the punishment for it? Who reaps the crop of accountability for it? Who reaps the judgment that it deserves? Is it you and me? No, it's Jesus Christ on the cross. He reaps what we have sown. What we have sown deserves punishment and accountability. It deserves condemnation, but that would destroy us. And so rather than us reap what we have sown, Jesus Christ has reaped what we have sown so that in the end, when Christ does come back and there is accountability for all of his stewards, we get to stand clean in front of the Father. We get to stand clean in front of Jesus with nothing but a harvest of goodness in our hands that he earned for us because he took what we have sown. He reaped what we have sown. He has taken what is not his, which is our punishment, and put it on his shoulders and his flesh and blood so that we might stand clean before the Father. The reason the king in the parable doesn't fight back against that accusation is because in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, it's 100% true. He reaps what he does not sow, which is our punishment in our place. (sighs) 
when you know that God has more. Oh. You're able to be generous with what God has given. Now, let me, let me kind of land the plane with one more insight. Because as you can tell, I really enjoy this text. Let me land the plane with, with, with one more insight. Do you remember how many stewards, how many servants that the king in the parable gave money to? How many did he give it to? He gave it to 10. But how many do we hear about? Three. We only hear about three. He gives it to 10. We only hear about three. We hear how three performed. Two were good. One was bad. How did the other seven do? How did the other seven do? We don't know. Why don't we know? Here's why we don't know. Because it's still ongoing. Because who are the other seven stewards? You. And me. You see, seven is the number for the church. The seven that we haven't heard about is the church. It's us. It's God's people right now, today, throughout time and eternity. How are you doing? How are we doing with the stuff that's been entrusted to us to be faithful with while the king is away? How have we been doing with it? How have we been doing with it? The reason you don't know how the other seven did is because it's you. It's me. It's us. We are the other seven. How are we doing with what's been entrusted to us? 30 years ago, 1995, the Chicago Tribune published a story about a man named Herman Russell who died at the age of 67. And when he died, he made headlines because he left behind a massive estate. And in his will, he bequested portions of his estate to various organizations and parties. He left $2 billion, $2 billion to the state of Illinois to take care of some things he was passionate about. He left $1.5 billion to the city of East St. Louis to help deal with the poor. He left another billion dollars to the National Park Service because he was passionate about that. The Postal Service in Chicago said that once word got out about Russell's bequest, that the post office was overwhelmed with thousands upon thousands of requests to his estate. Just one problem. You can go read the article online. Just one problem. When, when Russell died, he, uh, he didn't have any money. <laughs> the only thing that he had in his possession, his only possession was co-ownership, co-ownership of a 1983 Oldsmobile. And when word got out that he didn't actually have any of the money to give away, that he was giving away, people were understandably frustrated I read that story and I thought to myself, well, what's worse? What's worse? Making promises about billions that you don't have. Or out of, out of fear, selfishness, or simple lack of imagination, being unfaithful with what you do have. May, may you and me, may we move beyond the bare minimum of generosity. May we move into the tipping point. May we seek to be faithful with, with the things that God has given us. And it's so much more than money. He's put so much in our hands. May we seek to be faithful. Knowing his heart, may we seek to be faithful with the things that he's placed in our hands. And when it gets scary, when it stretches you, when you're like, I don't know if I can do this, just remember this. It comes down to three simple words. God has more. Amen.